The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome everybody to Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. I'm here with my regular my regular guest, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, shuffling for his uh, headphones there, I see. Uh, <laughs> I'll go to Ryan. Oh, now your, your red light's on. And Ryan Repko, certified financial planner professional with Rudy Wealth Management. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. And David Rudy, certified financial planner professional and retirement income certified professional. I was trying to toggle switches and talk at the same time. Dave, welcome. We have you on the line there. I'm here. Thanks for having me. Okay, good. Um, hopefully your phone won't break up. <laughs> his phone's been breaking up from his house. I think he has a haunted house. <laughs> so, Fred, I'm just looking at the TV. It says, uh, cutting payroll taxes. Uh, it just went away, but it basically said would deplete the Social Security system by 2023. That seems pretty, that seems like a stretch. I, right. mean, I, I think it was like scheduled to go out at 2032 or 37. Right. You'd think it would lop a year or so off. But yeah, I, I suspect that uh, depletes not the right, the right uh, description there. Diminish. It's going to start uh, uh, not paying for all the benefits. And, and again, uh, depleting means that the uh, kind of uh, – Fictional lockbox to go to zero, and then uh, at that point you'd have to spend things out of general revenue. And if you had to do that, would that cover somewhere around three out three fourths at this well, point? I guess that's right. Well, I mean, there's a rule, and the, but everyone knows the rule will never be enforced. And that is, if uh, if uh, we use up the trust fund, then Social Security benefits would have to be reduced back to the amount coming in each year. So if if that were done, uh, everyone would would see a reduction in their Social Security of you know ten percent, twenty percent, whatever. But I think uh, no one who's uh, politically astute really believes that will happen. That yeah. they'll they'll figure out some way to deal with it. And again, the the Social Security fund is uh, to a certain extent a fiction. Uh, for years and years, the um, government's been using the excess for uh, for spending or, or reducing the, the the size of the deficit. And in the future, it'll be just the opposite. The uh, Social Security system will actually increase the deficit because the amount coming in won't be enough to cover the current expenses. But again, uh, the, the lockbox and uh, fund and all that is more or less a, a kind of fiction. But again, it's basically a political promise, and it's very unlikely anyone's ever going to break that promise, at least in the foreseeable future. All right. Uh, kicked off with that. Uh, this is Paul Rudy's On The Money Radio Show. You can call in with your questions to 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor, conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, I just thought I'd hit you with that since that TV stations right above your head, yeah. Dr. Fred. And, uh, of course, that's always on people's minds. Um, and you feel the same way about the, the Illinois uh, taxing retirement income, which they do not do now. Uh, you, you still feel like politically that's probably a, a pretty faraway target. I think so because you have a <clears> – there's a uh, you know, you know, hacked and kind of saying that uh, Social Security is the third rail of – Politics at the at the federal level, no one wants to touch it without uh, 
suffering major damage. I think it's almost a third rail in the state of Illinois in terms of taxing retirement income because it wasn't that way originally. Actually, the income tax was uh, enacted, and for one year, retirement income was taxed, and then someone changed it uh, uh, the year after uh, through the General Assembly. And in those days, it didn't make much difference because there were, there were no 401Ks or uh, uh, IRAs and things of that sort. So, but now it's become a really major, major thing, but it's very difficult to get rid of it politically, so I don't think it's going to happen. Unless you do it like the federal government, then you just kind of means test it, and then yeah. you, you kind right. of sneak attack this non-inflation-adjusted uh, right. threshold that, after about 15 or 20 years, captures a good yeah. large number of people that are suddenly paying maybe up to 85% of their Social Security ends up being taxable income. Yeah, uh, um, I think most of the uh, – there, there are occasionally suggestions about taxing retirement income, but they're almost always – uh, taxing uh, th- something about fifty thousand or hundred thousand or whatever it might be, and again, uh, many people uh, don't understand that uh, when you talk about uh, taxing uh, pensions, uh, you're not just talking about uh, government employees; you're talking about everyone. So, so it's it, IRA, uh, you know, uh, private would, sector people, yeah. uh, pi- private pensions, whatever. And that, so, again, that's a pretty, uh, pretty uh, difficult uh, uh, step to, to take if you're you're a politician. So. Again, I think that's something that's going to happen uh, so, anytime soon. So when I told you before the radio show, I said, you know, I look at a stock market at all time new highs and then in the tech area raging into never seen, you know, this seems like it just wants to go up every day. I said, that to me suggests that maybe Wall Street thinks that, you know, uh, President Trump's going to get reelected and that they're comfortable with that. I'm not trying to take a political stance. Yeah. That's just my opinion of my thinking about <laughs> Wall Street. Yeah, you you thought that was a big bet. We don't uh, disagree very often, but I I guess my own story. Again, I always make fun of people who make uh, make up uh, uh, kind of stories about why the market's going up or going down. But my kids uh, make fun of me too, Fred. Go ahead. (laughs) But I think it uh, uh, it's come to a point where uh, investors, especially uh, in the tech sector, uh, believe that they can work with uh, Biden and Harris. It's sort of there's a thing that uh, Margaret Thatcher said that uh, Gorbachev's a man I can I can deal with. And yeah. I think that uh, even though uh, Democrats are saying all kinds of uh, what, what many people think of as wild uh, promises, I think that uh, there's a view that once once they get in that uh, there are people that they can deal with. But my own, uh, again, uh, I make fun of my own uh, analysis, but uh, uh, if you notice when uh, – Kamala Harris was chosen by Biden. The market went up about uh, uh, you know, 1% or so. And it wasn't because they loved uh, uh, Kamala Harris, it's because they really feared uh, Elizabeth Warren. Oh, uh, sure. And, and, right. and, and, uh, it was clearly hostile, at least on paper, and, and, to Wall Street. And I think that behind the scenes, uh, Harris has been very amenable to dealing with uh, Silicon uh, Valley people. So I think that you know, it, it could be either way. It could sure. be that. Uh, uh, people are harboring some kind of uh, hope that uh, Trump will win, but I think they're also uh, reconciled to the fact they probably can deal with uh, the new administration. So, in other words, there's, maybe it's just an indication like, hey, either way it flips, yeah. we're comfortable that there's not any radical changes yeah. coming. And that's just pure speculation on my part, yeah. which you know I love to do, Fred. Um, we're going to go to David, not my David. We're going to go to David on line two. David, how can we help you today? 
Oh yeah, morning. Yeah, I'm tempted to actually ask you about the post office. I was, uh, <laughs> but I, I wanted to ask. My more picture about is not in the post office. If that's your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, yeah, I mean the stability of America when the post office. I was watching that hearing yesterday, and uh, I, you know, I was under the impression they'd only ripped out, uh, you know, twenty or forty different high-speed sorting machines, but apparently it's like a hundred and fifty of them. And when you start looking at 150 high-speed sorting machines being ripped out of, there's something like 20 of them out of L.A. alone, uh, that, that the idea that America's commerce can be so delayed that all of a sudden, you know, you know the economy is, I can't even imagine how the economy is, is improving with the, the post office being ripped apart like that. But uh, I was more interested in the bonds. Uh, I'm, I'm originally from down in St. Louis. Uh, I'm in, you know, in the suburbs uh, out there. I was, I went to a school that was four scores, a four-star uh, school district. So, you know, our bond rating was about as good as you could get. Uh, people that went there ended up with a good quality education, and the idea that we're being told to go back to school, uh, you know, send all the kids back to school. Uh, how is that going to take, uh, you know, how is that going to rip apart the bond issues for school districts that are going to, if they send kids back to, to whether they're one-star or four-star school districts, the bond issues are going to be just crippled because of lawsuits. If those school districts end up with lawsuits for the next 50 years because, uh, you know, kids are crippled and dead because of, uh, of bad advice about sending people back to schools, uh, how is that going to deal with uh, the bond issues for schools? But in addition, our uh, city, uh, because we had a four-star school district, our, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, real estate prices in that city were high because everybody wanted to go to those school districts. And so how is that going to deal with real estate prices when uh, when kids are going to be okay. sent back to a... Well, right. I think the, uh, the bond issue is kind of... Uh Secondary, the, the real question is, uh, can people, uh, kids be sent back to school successfully? And I think we don't know the answer right now. And, uh, again, uh, you could err on the side of never doing anything and wait, you know, six years before you send kids back to school. And that's probably not a very good solution. And you could probably send everyone back tomorrow. And that's probably not uh, particularly good. So it's going to be something we just have to feel our way through. And so again, I don't you think in a big picture, if say, uh, this virus is 10 times worse than influenza. We ought to treat it like it's 10 times worse and maybe not 1,000. I'm not arguing either way, yeah, but it right. seems like I told some people the other day, look, 1,000 kids a, a year drown in swimming pools. Uh, we're going to close down swimming pools. I'm not arguing against the life of children. I'm not, yeah. That's not my point. Yeah. And a couple million kids a year go into the emergency room with bicycle wrecks. Uh, right. We're going to stop kids from riding bikes. Uh, there's a sense of proportionality that seems to also right, but again, it, it, uh, unfortunately, which has nothing to do with the bond question, Fred. Unfortunately, uh, uh, the school issue is not just a matter of uh, of you or I or uh, someone who's an expert making a decision. It's a political one. So again, there was some uh, study at New. No, it's not. It's scientific. So let's get away from that. Let's get away from that and talk about the bond issue. Are the bonds okay. more at risk today 
because of decisions being made to send children to school versus not sending, sending well them. i don't i don't think so i mean the property tax uh, are still there but again the, the, maybe new bonds might be uh, more of an issue and it's going to be true every place does the university of illinois want to uh, build uh, large numbers of new classrooms where they don't know whether they'll be uh, going back to a, a higher percentage of online so there's a lot of uncertainty right now i don't think there's a lot of uh, danger about the existing bonds but uh it's certainly i, I wouldn't want to uh, be a school board member and decide to uh, take on a big building project. Wait, couldn't you make the same argument? Even municipal bonds uh, are sure. riskier today than maybe ever. Sure, and uh, again, uh, w would uh, the uh, University of Illinois athletics program be building uh, soccer stadiums and uh, and track uh, track and field stadiums and uh, indoor uh, golf facilities and so and softball facilities and baseball facilities? Had they known what's going to what's happening now when they started this two years ago and probably the answer is no so again there's going to be a lot of decisions that are uh reconsidered but again i think the bonds are, are certainly not not the prime issue here i i would say this well, i wouldn't i wouldn't have any interest in buying most municipal or school bonds yeah zero as an investor that's mm -hmm. not t i'm not telling people to not buy them my personal opinion for my money i wouldn't do it but there's not going to be many issues either that's the point because people are, are probably not going to undertake uh, these kind of projects right now. Correct. So that's the funny, bond. It's funny you talk about the construction. Uh, it, it, as I've been paying attention to, say, for example, road projects, this is a perfect time for a city or county to do a road project when people are in self-quarantine. The, the use of the road is far down, is, is way down, and they're able to finish the project quicker. And so the cost of rebuilding roads or sewer bond issues or, uh, you know, in, infrastructure bond issues are actually uh, coming out more useful because they're able to complete the projects with less problem. No, I, I, uh, I, I agree, I agree uh, completely that uh, now is the time for uh, targeted infrastructure. Uh, you have almost a zero interest rate. And so, again... Uh, but 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 uh, it's done through the political process, and, and they're probably not ready to do that. But certainly, this would be a good time for various kinds of infrastructure, particularly federal. Oh, right. Yeah. So it, so it's interesting. You know, in an epidemic, I want the management of that epidemic to be done like a symphony conductor, and we're getting a, a bad tuba player running the epidemic. We're seeing Michigan people showing up with guns up in Michigan to to you know, lynch the governor if she doesn't reopen, and their death rate is sitting at, at there was one yeah. point where it was 10%. You had a 10, 1 in 10 chance of dying if you caught COVID in Michigan because of those gun-toting fools. And when you <laughs> Look, see... We're getting, <laughs> you know, Dave, with, you know, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with you, but the show really, that's the 9 to 11 hour uh, to share that view. No, I'm talking about bond issues and, and stability of America. And it should be run with a like a symphony conductor rather than a bad tuba player. And I'm actually concerned, you know, when you look at, at somebody like Betsy DeVos that wants to privatize schools and she wants uh, it to ruin the credit rating of schools so that they, they get caught in lawsuits, uh, mandating that all kids have to go back, uh, uh, you know, to face death and, and enormous <laughs> medical bills for their parents. Uh, talk about the the real estate loss. The, the school districts would have to sell their land, and then Betsy DeVos would get to snap it up at two cents on the dollar. <laughs> All right, so we're, okay. we're, David, we're going to move on because this is going to end up with people calling back and forth, and we're going to. But so, well, we might spend a few more 
moments talking about your bond issue, but from there we're going to leave it off. But thank you for your call. You've obviously, obviously thought this through. Thank you. Now, heaven forbid, <laughs> the most economically marginalized kids would have a chance to go to a private school like the rich white kids. But that's neither here nor there. Oh, I just got political. Oh, probably lose my business over that one. Anyway, Fred, I, I understand his frustration. I think any of us can, but it's it's it's. You know, if I could tie his knots together, I think he's just talk, talking about the economics of schools as it relates to bonds and communities and taxing power, real estate values. I'm just not sure how to put all those things together in one. Well, it, it's part of a. It's a, a serious situation, but there. Are, uh, probably 30 serious situations similar. I, I, I drove through uh, Chicago on, uh, I guess, on uh, Monday or Tuesday, and, and it's basically shut down again. And there are people own bond, that are, have bonds on uh, various kinds of uh, businesses. There are all kinds of real estate owners who have uh, really serious problems collecting rent. And I'm sure the values have, have gone down. Those bonds probably have lost a lot of their value. So it's a widespread problem. I don't think you want to just focus on schools and nothing but schools. Yeah, I mean, but this infrastructure idea, you know, actually building stuff, doing big things from an economic standpoint, it's close to zero, essentially. Let's just call them zero interest rates, uh, especially if you consider they can issue these bonds for 30 years or right. longer uh, at a very low rate. Just with, just nor with below normal inflation, it's essentially a zero-cost game to right. the government, which is us. Yeah. Uh, that would strike me as a time to... To, right. do, to do such yeah. things. The problem is that both the caller and both uh, the two of us are, are talking about if you had like a benevolent dictator making these decisions, yeah. but if you decide to build uh, infrastructure, who knows what uh, what people will call infrastructure. For ex my, my example yeah. is that uh, Chicago thought they needed uh, uh, expansion of the, uh, of the uh, expedition uh, opportunities in McCormick Place and so on. So they want to get money for McCormick Place. But to do that, we had to also uh, build one in Springfield, one in Peoria, and, and all over the state, which probably were not nearly as, as uh, compelling there. So you can't really – it's not like a private investor deciding, I want to do this and not do that. When you do something through the political process, my, my view in Illinois is you probably have to spend about twice as much money as you At least. need you to get what you – get the core of what you at need. least which then be degrades the whole process it's like saying wait a minute now we've we from a pro productivity standpoint we only got a dollar's worth of stuff for two dollars of, yeah. of, of taxation well you know we could go on that stuff forever <laughs> and ever but one thing we can't ignore we have a stock market at an all-time new high the standard ports 500 index so if you use that as a broad measure the dow not quite there but it looks like it's steaming towards 29.50 or so 29,000, um, you know, people have to be shaking their heads, Fred and Ryan and Dave. Um, but actually, I'll go, I'll circle back to that. But at the same time, the most frequent question we're getting, Fred and David and Ryan, I think I'm going to address it for this Sunday's News Gazette column. And David, and you guys can chime in. It's, should we be doing something different just before the election? And so it goes like this. I get emails and it's, Hey, it could be from either side, by the way. I'm con concerned about this or that, and we're headed towards this problem or that problem. If so-and-so gets elected, and the, maybe the country's fundamentally changed forever. F fill in the blank. Do you think we should do something, slash sell, and get out of the stock market? That's, that's, what, that's the question under the question. Should we sit it out until we find out 
what happens. And other than I can despisely say historically, it's a horrible strategy. But here's the twist that I'm hearing more frequently. It's yes, but this isn't like any other time we've seen. This is literally to some people, we are going to go into the socialist Cuba country uh, if so and so's attached, and and if Trump doesn't yeah. win, um, yeah, there's a saying. I got to really think through. You know, I I'm a probability guy, Fred yeah. and Dave, and I think, well, what are your odds you're going to pick the election right? Probably fifty fifty. Yeah. If you just pick a number, well, that seems reasonable. Okay, what are the odds if you are right about your prediction of the election that you're right about the outcome economically and if if economically, what, is, what does that really mean about the stock market? It seems like there's a series of compound bets we're making that make it a really irrational thing right. to think about. There's a, a saying that uh, you hear all the time, this time it's different. Uh, you, you may have been uh, wrong 20 times by getting out of the stock market at the wrong time, but this time it's different or right. whatever it might be. And, it, and the answer is no one knows, but it's probably not different. It's probably more or less the same. And again, if, if, you, if you believe in uh, markets working to a certain extent, you have to think, uh, are all the investors assuming Trump's going to win? And the answer is no. They, they, I would think most investors probably think he's going to lose. And they're investing on that, that basis. So the stock market is not a bunch of uh, uh, crazy Republicans just betting that uh, Trump's going to win. There, there are all kinds of bets different ways. And so the market gives us kind of a uh, indication about uh, what people, what, what investors think about the future, and it seems like it's pretty, pretty positive. And they can't be betting on on being positive just because they think uh, Trump's going to win. Yeah, the overlapping minds are saying we have a stock market at all time highs, and that's discounting the future, the next maybe three to thirty months. At least that's what, you know, that's kind of the theory out there. And I would have to think at least half the people <laughs> are worried about the other side, yeah. you know, uh, both ways. And, and so, the consensus so uh, seems to be it's not radical stuff. Dave, do you have something to add to that? I was going to say, you know, didn't you hear similar concerns when Obama was first elected, you know, about, yes. oh, he's socialist. And you hear all these, you know, really kind of extreme views. So when people say this time is different, sometimes I kind of chuckle to myself because I hear that phrase I've, I've heard it so many times yeah but uh, okay so you know this is a natural question to advisors and my I'm, what I'm trying not to do this time is just reflexively give an answer right I'm really if, I've been really yeah. thinking about this for three or four days day on and day out by the way to know uh, if I had to guess whether the market would uh, respond to Biden winning or Trump winning, I'm not even sure qu which way it would go. Right. If, if people remember uh, the night of the election uh, when uh, Trump made this kind of uh, stunning uh, uh, win, uh, the, the futures market was down by about uh, – the Dow Jones was down by 1,000 points that night, much lower Dow Jones. Right. And uh, people thought this is going to be the uh, kind of chaos for the next four years, and then it's turned out to have been – uh, until a virus, uh, extremely positive situation. So you never know. Yeah. So the danger, here's what I've been thinking about formulating in my brain is, so outside of the political calculation, whether you're right or wrong, assuming you're right, um, you, you're probably not going to be right as far as what happens to your investments in the stock market, let alone the economy, okay? So you think, well, Let's suppose it went down 15% suddenly. I mean, we just went through a bear market in a, a matter of a few weeks where the stock market sliced off a third. 
that okay so let's say it's like slices off a third it's so bearish because xyz won the election or it suddenly pops up 10 or 15 percent we've seen that happen we've just had the best hundred days ever in the stock market um you and you sit out i'm thinking okay if you're in it for your lifetime and it temporarily declines by 20 or 30 percent all you have to do is wait it out no no financial harm is going to come to you if you're if you can anticipate it inside your plan but if you're sitting out and you miss that 10 or 20 or 30 percent forever increase that's never compounded now you have locked in a lifetime of underperformance guaranteed though sitting it out part i can make pretty much any financial plan um, live up to reasonable expectations but what you cannot combat is if you miss that burst and and returns if there if i've learned anything about the stock market is returns are lumpy but they come in bursts and it's too easy to miss a 10 or 15 percent move and then you never see those prices again in your life that is wealth and resources forever lost and i think that is more risky than sitting through an inevitable or a, a potentially uh it's not inevitable but uh a temporary decline that will heal itself ultimately now maybe it won't in the future i i do have to say there are no facts about the future but if we glean anything from the capital markets in the free world it's that's kind of the story right that's I, I, I'm trying to think of it probabilistically, but I'm not sure that that's the best way to even approach it because it's places in the heart, not places in the chart. Yeah, we go back to I think uh, we've talked about that, and you've talked about this several times in the last few months. But if you were comfortable where you were in uh, January of uh, 2020, and you're comfortable now, you probably shouldn't change. Uh, on the other hand, if you thought you were over your skis in uh, January 2020, you might want to do some tinkering not not sell out and get out of the market completely but do some adjusting so it's more a matter of, of whether you're comfortable with your uh, your risk situation that, and that's more of a lifetime thing yeah. not a it's because of the election david you were going to say yeah and i was going to say the other thing is you can get stuck on the sidelines for a long time so you mentioned missing a 10 or a 15 percent pop what can happen then is well, this is just a fluke. Uh, the market hasn't really priced in all this negative stuff that I'm foreseeing in the future that's going on right now. So I'll just wait for it to pull back because it's going to pull back. And people act as if these things are a certainty. And then it goes up 100% over the next two years. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I'm saying that's a possibility. That's what happened to a lot of people after 2008. And it you know, wasn't related to the election. It was just related to you know, the economic kind of devastation that happened then, but you can get stuck for a really long time. And that's when you really do some damage and mm -hmm. you just can easily fall into that trap. Anytime you start making decisions based on your predictions for the future, the wheels kind of come off at that point. You're not following a plan and you start, you, you run the, the risk of, of making bad decisions one way or another, getting stuck on the sidelines for a long time or, you know, going all in on something like, let's say Trump wins and and someone was, a you know, a Republican, they they go all in. They try to increase their equity allocation because they think it's going to be bullish. Well, other stuff can happen, as we saw in March. I mean, a, a pandemic can hit that no one foresees and cause a market decline. So there there's always uncertainty when you're investing. Like there's never this time where there's not a risk that you could invest your money 
and have a temporary decline, regardless of what's going on politically. Like that's that's just one thing that can influence the market. There's a million different other things that can influence the stock market as well. You think that's the part most people miss that it's never one thing; it's hundreds of things that are getting priced into the market at every moment. Absolutely, I think people people like to oversimplify and they like to distill it down to one thing, and that's like you know when when Dr. Gertz mentioned he kind of laughs when people talk about you know they they come up with the story for why the market does what it does. It's because usually it's this huge oversimplification that it's it's not. It's not going to be just that thing. Even if you were right about how that thing that thing influenced the market, it's not going to be just that that moved the market. So and, there's a bunch of different things at any given time moving stock prices of different companies across the globe, and that's getting reflected in you know indices that people follow. And David, often what I think I see and hear the most is that one thing that people attribute to being the reason uh, or the exact cause for the, the issues or the potential reason for avoiding investing is oftentimes an emotional issue for most people that matters most to them, maybe more than the next person. So I think people uh, falsely assume the things that are the most concerning to them have the, the biggest and most real impact on the economy at large. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, so I'm going to address this. Uh, this is the challenge that we face as financial advisors, Fred. So welcome to our world. And I know you get those questions, too, right. just because of your, your background in economics and yeah. finance. Um, again, though, the, the guys, I, t I tell the young guys, I go, you just you have to really think through this and be very careful how you answer it and not just give them a short historical uh, because – when you see people, uh, when you when you meet people that are genuinely so concerned that the fundamental nature of the country is going yeah. to change, and there are days, and I feel like that. I got to admit that if there's ever a value of an advisor in your lifetime, it's for him to just or her say, "You really don't want to do that." Yeah. I mean, your heart is telling you to do that. Your emotions are telling you to do that. But studying finance and markets for almost four decades now. I've seen that fail time and time again. Right. But here's, of course, the challenge. Okay, Paul, I'll listen to you. <laughs> then the person you think you're afraid of is going to win wins. Yeah. And we go into a recession, whether it's that person's fault or not, we yeah. just do. And the stock market's down 30%. Okay? If you, so then they go, well, I knew I, then there's all kinds of regret. If you let them do that and they're right, and that same thing happens, then you're setting up a person now who believes that they can consistently forecast sure. not only elections, but the economy in the markets. It's not going to happen. Yeah, there's a psychological tendency to, to uh, put uh, logic into things that are illogical. To, and and you, you can uh, decide based on uh, a, a sample of one that you're a good stock market picker and <laughs> make some big mistakes. But if you look back, all I mean, we had the Great Recession. We had the uh, Greece and Southern Europe uh, uh, defaults. We had uh, Obamacare that was going to change everything. We had the uh, debt ceiling that was going to be raised in 2011. The market went down a huge amount. So there are a million we different things. We lost things. our AAA rating for the first time. But if you, who, who even remembers that? Who, who, who remembers a savings and loan crisis? Right. <laughs> Back in, I don't know, late 80s or something. But uh, they were all catastrophic at the time and they tend to be less so. So again, no one knows about the future, but you can't. Uh, 
think that you're going to be wise enough to guess it right uh, this one time. And isn't it fair to say, regardless of how maybe pessimistic from both sides we are about politics, at the end of the day, the president can't just run away with things. Now people are going to call me and scream and say that's what Trump's doing. But I mean, fundamentally, it still has to go through. Yeah. 535 people in Congress and 100 well, U.S. The, the, senators. It's a little bit different now because the last two presidents have operated with executive orders and uh, all the good things that liberals thought that uh, uh, President Obama was doing could, could be erased and to a certain extent were erased uh, by Trump and a lot of the things that deregulation and so on has not been approved by Congress. It's been an executive order, so a new person can come in and change that. But the, the main thing is, I think the, the broader thing is that uh, uh, governments don't necessarily drive the economy. They can they can do some bad things, but they they don't they're not the drivers. And the economy can live in in some pretty hostile environments. I think that uh, is something that people have to remember. Isn't that true, Fred? Uh, as you say, you th- you think about historical all the challenges and emergencies that we've had from day one. It seems like corporate America can stand back and either solve it or learn to live with it, and and actually not only get back to where they were, but better than they ever were. Yeah. I mean, innovation and and you know prosperity is. It's not a given. There have to be conditions for that. Right. But, but also, I think people uh, look at the, uh, things in general and then apply that to the uh, economy. I mean, I think it, it can be said with some truth that uh, uh, conservatives have lost the social revolution. That's, that's over. And, and things are different now than they used to be. They'll probably never go back to the way they were. And you may not like that, but that has not a big impact in terms of how the how the economy is going to function or how the, the stock market is going to function. I mean, if you look at the last 126 trading days, okay, that's from peak to valley to peak. It's the index's fastest ever recovery from a bear market. When I say index, it's the standard Porsche 500 index, which is a measure of the 500 largest U.S. companies slash tech companies lately. Um, who would have thought? So even if, if you knew absolute certain the day of the peak stock market back in January, I think it was the 19th. I don't remember. Maybe it was February. Um, I remember I wrote a, are you ready for a bear market? One and a half percent off the all-time high, yeah. which was a complete accident. Just random. But if somebody came to you that day, guys, and said, look, I don't know why, but for the first time in my life, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen over the next several months to the U.S. economy. We're going to lose more jobs than we ever did. We're going to lose 20 million jobs. We're going to close down America, essentially. This, this, this is going to absolute happen. Um, what do you think you should do with your money in the stock market? And you have to, you, you would never in your life have imagined that, well, wait a minute, I woke up 126 <laughs> days later and all that stuff happened and I still have the same stock market right. values I did before. Anybody that says that's imaginable is nuts. And go ahead. I was going to say it's unfathomable. I mean, this, you know, the speed with which we had our decline and the speed with which we had our recovery are both unprecedented. Um, so I think for anybody who's living through this, you're, you're living through some unique times. And, and in that sense, maybe it is different in the speed, but we've seen declines and we've seen recoveries. It just happened so fast in such a compacted amount of time that that's, that in itself is unique. I worry a little bit about some, some people who are now going to be modern, you know, what I call today's present modern investors. They say, well, you know, I lived through the 
2020 decline, I was I was comfortable. You know, it came right. back. Well, it came back in a in a matter of a month or a couple months. Right. Um, you know, generally these these take a couple years sometimes to recover, if not a little bit longer. So you know, I worry about that a little bit on the investor psyche for some folks going forward. Well, to the extent that really the last several bear markets have been pretty much they've sure. been steep and ugly, but they they end fast. Yeah. But my whole point is there's this total disconnect that even if you think you can forecast the economy and even if you could perfectly, mm. you're not going to forecast what happens to your investments right. If it was March ninth of two thousand and nine and I told you that for the next four years unemployment would not go below seven percent, GDP will not go above two percent, you wouldn't have thought wow, the market's yeah. going to go up 250% over the next four years. Again, if I told you that exactly what was going to happen verbatim, prescient, just I knew it, you would have never in a million years bet. And right. so that's, that's the, I think the overriding point is you, even you're not going to be right on the economy, but even if you were, it's not going to translate. And sometimes uh, following, a, following a rule is a good idea, but it's also lucky as well. I, I wasn't on the service board at the time, but uh, – Service, like everyone else, suffered a huge decline in the uh, financial crisis. Uh, their rules said rebalance, and they, because of the turmoil, they took about three or four months to rebalance. So they ended up rebalancing in March of uh, 2009, which was the wow. world's greatest decision, but it yes. wasn't based on, uh, on uh, timing the market. It was doing what they, they were supposed to do. All right, we're going to go to Jack oh. on line two. Jack, you have a question about the S&P 500. I do. I have a couple of questions. First, I appreciate your uh, radio show. I always uh, plagiarize your statement of it's not timing, it's time in. I appreciate that nugget. Um, if a person wanted to uh, short or he thought the S&P was going to go down in the next month or two, are there efficient ways to uh, play that? Yeah, you can. Uh, this is my suggestion, but there are. To answer your question is yes, there are. They're fairly low cost. Not not well. I'm not even going to categorize them as fairly low cost. Outside of just purely shorting stocks, okay, you can go in and buy these exchange traded funds that are reverse of whatever the S and P 500 does. You can get it one times. You can get two times leverage, three times leverage. Um, I'm not suggesting those. Uh, as far as two and three times leverage, but if you wanted to do that. Now, you have to understand ahead of time, this is for very short-term trading because of this reverse compounding in down markets. The math gets really weird. So after four or five days, you know, it can, they can kind of become disconnected mathematically. But for short periods, maybe a week or two, uh, and then reassess, there's ways to do it in their exchange-traded funds. If you, if you look at, like, iShares or you go to... Uh, Oh, it used to be Rushmore funds. I, uh, I, I, bull. Uh, I, anyway, there's two or three firms that really specialize in this. Have exchange traded funds, and you could do it. And just, what would be the what would be the maximum you could leverage it? Three times. Three times. Yeah. So if you thought, so, you know what, uh, I have three hundred dollar portfolio, but I only have a hundred dollars to hedge with, and if I want to purely hedge it for a very short period of time, you could accomplish it. Can you go below zero or? Well, you can go, it can become bizarre math when you consider, you know, uh, if it goes, if it's 200 times leverage and it goes down 50%, I mean, it's, it, it completes disconnect and you're not going to have any correlation to, you're not going to do what you wanted to do. Okay. Hey, appreciate it. Okay. Does that answer your question? Thanks. All yep. right. 
Yeah, there's, there's another. We, we always talk about. Wait, I thought he got time in the market, not timing, and now he's talking about shorting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he's just curious. But there, there's a, you know, we always talk about financial uh, organizations figuring out ways to uh, get people to do things. There's now, I guess they kind of merged uh, gaming into investing. So there's some, uh, some uh, platforms where you invest, but you get bells and whistles and things that makes you feel like you're, you're playing uh, Pac-Man or something. And, Huh. Nothing would surprise me, Fred. I mean, we're we're like squirrels, us humans. We are yeah. attracted by shiny objects, and Wall Street is really good at packaging up crap uh, and pandering to people's emotions and giving them what they want instead of what they need. That's yeah. probably the fundamental problem yeah. with the investment industry. And people having a lot of hand, uh, time on their hands has created some new well, day, even day, that, day graders. As yes, well. I guess that's a huge issue. It's, is it Robin Hood that's one of the beneficiaries of that yeah. short-term day trading? And, you know, there are so many parallels, guys, to the mid to late 1990s and today. Um, it's easy to get rich. You just buy a certain handful of stocks. It's easy to get rich. You just day trade. Um, this is a time when it's been painful. The Standard Poor's 500 index, dominated by four or five stocks that are tech-oriented stocks, has had substantially better returns than a diversified global portfolio. And, and I've seen it before. I lived through the pretty much the precise thing in the mid-90s, only to end up by the year beginning of the year 2000 with a very overpriced Standard & Poor's 500 index and all the other stuff that people eschewed, uh, you know, went on for the next 10 years to go up about 70% in a global portfolio where the broad market I mean, if you bought IBM on January 1st of 2000, over the next 15 years, the earnings would double, but the stock price went nowhere. What you pay for an asset has an impact on your lifetime return. And I, there's a real disconnect right now with that. And, uh, you know, we, we got our work to do as global investors to convince people to stay the course. And sometimes it's hard. And, and my young guys are Getting when I was a young guy like them back in the mid '90s, it was it was a lot of pressure yeah. um, to say, you know what, maybe diversification's dead, um, maybe value's dead. Remember in the late 1970s, 1979, you know, the death of equities uh, for the prior 16 years, riskless Treasury bills outperformed stocks. Mm -hmm. And after 16 or 17 years of that, people were pretty much universally, it's broad brush, but there was a universal thinking that, oh, the stock market's dead. Uh, it's never going to produce the returns that we thought it would. Then it went on to the 19 best mm. years it ever <clears throat> had. Fred, you remember that. Right. You were there. Yeah, there was uh, Paul, Sam, Paul Samuelson and Milton Friedman used to write articles in uh, Newsweek. And back in the 70s, Paul Samuelson <clears throat> wrote an article saying, how should I invest? He said, well... Uh, I've been in, uh, I think, TIA Craft or something for a long time. I put half of it into equity, half of it into fixed income, and they're after 10, 20 years, they're both exactly the same, yeah. uh, which uh, was true then, but it's certainly not true uh, since that time. What an environment we're living in, guys, where you have fixed income, you know, income-producing investments, CDs, bonds, corporate bonds, treasuries, if, if they're high-quality and reasonable maturities, paying somewhere between zero and maybe 2% if you want to go out on the scale. But essentially, let's just say we're living in a 1% income-producing world. At the same time, you have the Standard & Poor's 500 index as, as overvalued as it was at the beginning of 2000, and that didn't end well. What 
a difficult time period for investors. I can't think of a more difficult time period because at least at the in the late 90s going into beginning of 2000, you had pretty respectable CD rates in the 4 or 5%, maybe even higher range. But now when you have a portfolio that's 50% stocks, 50% bonds, you look over at that 50% bond portfolio and say, I'm not going to really get much out of that other than treading water. And people think interest rates can't go lower other than if you look at if you look at the long-term chart of, say, one-year treasuries in real terms, net of inflation, they've been this low before. They've actually been even a little bit lower. Uh, so there's no reason to think that it naturally has to change anytime sure. soon. Um, there's more and more people suggesting we're going to have higher than what we've been used to inflation. I could probably make a case for that over the next three to five years. Um, a lot of people that are investors today have never seen 4 and 5% inflation. Uh, I'm just wondering what that's going to do to people's psyches. Um, anyway, that's kind of my thinking. That's my rambling. I don't know. You guys can add to my rambling. Fred. Well, oh, go ahead, Dave. Anytime you get into, don't you think anytime you kind of get into extremes with investing scenarios, that really exacerbates just like human behavior issues? Of like course. When you get to super low interest rates or you get the huge differences in performance between certain asset classes. Like right now, large cap growth is doing great. International has been doing terrible for 10 years. Small cap and value have been doing pretty poorly for 10 years. It's gotten much wider as far as the differences in returns over the last couple of years. I think all those, when you start getting into like extremes with all these things, people naturally, it's just like magnifies their emotions and magnifies their potential for making mistakes. Like, performance chasing or just doing goofy things with their investment portfolio. Yeah, yeah there are, I'm, I have a long enough memory to, <laughs> there are always bad times you can look back on that are, they're probably worse. If you think about investing in the late 70s or early 80s, uh, you had two things. First of all, the, the after-tax return on bonds was negative. You would get yep. interest. You would get uh, interest that didn't even match inflation. You'd have to pay tax on the interest. So you're, And the stock market was going nowhere. And so you, you had nothing to, to choose from. And then all of a sudden, things took off in the, after 1982, and it was a different world. So you just never know. And it usually, uh, the biggest moves come, as David said, uh, you know, during periods of big extremes. But they can last longer than people think. That's the other thing. You really can't do much. You can't make any timing decisions out of it. You can't say because it's been that way for 10 years. Uh, certainly, it has to change this week. Um, who knows how long these extreme trends uh, go? And a lot of times, they can last longer than the than the human psyche ability to hang in there. Yeah, but a lot of a lot of uh, of models for investing uh, depend upon past rates of return. So if you if you took the last thirty years in bonds and projected that the next thirty years, you're almost certainly going to be. Uh, drastically wrong. Right. And the same as in 1979 or 1980 or 82, if you looked at the last 16 or 17, the prior 16 or 17 years and tried to draw any conclusions from that, uh, Dave, is that just basically the same way uh, the people you used to work with at Dimensional Fund Advisors, the Nobel Prize winners walking up and down the halls, they would seem to always have this common theme of, you know, a 10 or 15 year period is just noise. There's a lot of noise in there. There's no, there's really no conclusions yeah. to be drawn. Is that, is that, kind of what you remember, Dave? Oh, exactly. And I think that just really throws people for a loop because in human terms, it's a long time. Three years is long in human terms. In, yeah. <laughs> well, there's yeah. also... From uh, an investment standpoint, it's meaningless. 
But there are also big things like the the, the time you you know retiring at a certain time. You retired in uh, two thousand nine. It probably wasn't a great time. To, right. And you're never going to match what you what other people three or four years ahead of and behind you are. But that's the that's the way the world works. It's just the right. There's a lot of randomness, yeah. like to what your lifetime return is going to be based on the day you were born. Yeah. I mean, those are things that are uncontrollable, and but yet. You know, you have to realize some environments are more difficult than others. The the key is for re- people in retirement is to have a plan that can anticipate difficult periods of time. There's going to be stressful periods. Your plan needs to be able to work, whether interest rates are at epic lows or growth stocks are at you know as overvalued as they've been you know for 20 years. Um, and that usually circles back to diversification. You know, you want to have certain amount of assets that aren't impacted by the crazy stuff. Uh, and you you can't allow yourself to expect too much out of those, but you need a set of decision rules ahead of time that says, look, it's kind of this if this, then that. And basically that's what we're constantly monitoring is, okay, what would our portfolio conditions have to be in order for us to tell the clients they can spend more money or maybe slightly reduce their spending? And it's important to know those those numbers ahead of time. And if I've learned anything over four decades, it's, have rules that you decide upon when you're calm, cool, and collected. Um, because that's the only hope you're going to have to make it out alive and have a decent retirement. You can have a wonderful retirement and have below average returns over a two to three decade period. Okay, maybe it's not lifestyles of the rich and famous, but it can be everything you would hope for at a minimum uh, to live that essential life. And that's my way of translating, look, I recognize that this is a difficult investing environment. But as Fred said, you know what, if you actually go back and look and do the math and think of things in terms of net of inflation, which is the only sane way to think about investment returns, there's been other difficult periods and challenging periods. And the only people that made it out alive were the people that could step back and say, look, all I know is there's two types of assets you can own. You can either be a lender and lend your money to banks by buying their CDs. You can lend money to companies by buying their corporate bonds, governments by buying their government bonds, or you're an owner of companies, of the great companies of America and the world. And there's a lot of unknown unknowns in both of those, but there's many more unknown unknowns and much unknowns and more uncertainty when it comes to the ownership of the great uh, companies of America. But that's why they've earned two to three times the returns after taxes and inflation that the bondholders, the lenders do. And just be prepared for the inevitable uh, periods where it's going to hurt your feelings. Some, we just, sometimes we expect way too much out of our investment portfolio that does, isn't based in reality, economic reality, historical investment return reality. And if people can just find an advisor that can guide them and has a reasonable, sensible set of rules that can anticipate poor periods of time that are going to be distressing to those clients, Talk about them ahead of time. Let's talk about where those trigger, you know, where those guardrails are in the future. I have found that the people that attach their retirement life to a plan have much more happier, much more happier, have happier (laughs) retirements. It's not guaranteed, but that's just my general observation. And they worry a heck of a lot less. And they only relate to their financial advisor through the plan not through markets and performance chasing. Well, that's all I got, guys. That was pretty good filler, though, right? Right. Huh? See, 36 years, you can just <laughs> talk extemporaneously about the same stuff you've talked about the last 30 years on the show. 
Anyway, Dr. Fred Gertz, thanks for being on the show. I thought it was a good show today. Ryan, despite you being on the show, I thought it was terrific as well. And same to you, David. <laughs> so I'll see you guys later this Thank afternoon. You. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.